The date is February 7th, 1974, and we're watching Blazing Saddles. Welcome to I Used to Like This One. Hello and welcome to I Used to Like This One, the show where we take a look back at movies we remember fondly from our childhood and attempt to look past the nostalgia to see if they still hold up. My name is Sean Wells and with me as always is the Sheriff Bart to my Waco kid. I was wondering wondering which direction you were going to go, but I'm glad that you went racially appropriate. (laughs) Hello, I'm Colin Stewart. So this week, we are looking back at February 1974 when the movies in theaters were Black Belt Jones, the autobiography of Miss Jane Pittman, The Street Fighter, not to be confused with just Street Fighter, and Zardoz. I don't even know how that's pronounced. Zardoz? Zardoz? If you don't know what that is, uh, have you ever seen the picture of Sean Connery in that really odd red Borat style singlet? No. <laughs> no? Okay. That's Zardoz. I know when Sean Connery recently died, I, I saw some of those pictures go up. And of course, our movie for today, Blazing Saddles, which earned $119.6 million on a $2.6 million budget. This is one that I actually adjusted for inflation because I was curious because it's such an old movie. That would be the equivalent of $631.6 million on a $13.7 million budget. Like, made today, this is a half a billion dollar movie. Wow. And it's <laughs> and it's how old? 46? Am I doing is, 46 years is that old. My yeah. math is it? Yeah, so the movie's 46 yeah. old, so... Just remember, people, there will be spoilers ahead. Again, 46 years old. (laughs) If you don't want the movie to be spoiled for you, please hit pause. Go watch it. I mean, I'll be interested to hear what you think. So if you also want to comment to tell us what you think, please do. But go watch it. Come back. And then enjoy the ride. (laughs) So the tagline that appears on the poster for this movie is... Blazing Saddles or Never Give a Saga an Even Break, which honestly, that tagline makes absolutely zero sense to me. There, I, I did also with this one find an alternate, as I often do, and this one is Mel Brooks and the West, Together for the Last Time. That's one I like more because I actually kind of understand it, but... Those may not be the best descriptions of what this movie is, so let's go to Colin for a 60-second synopsis. All right, ladies and gentlemen, it's 1874 in the American Wild West, and Hedley Lamar needs to reroute his railroad through the town of Rock Ridge in order to avoid some quicksand. But how will he convince the townspeople to abandon it? There's only one way. Appoint former railroad worker Bart to be the town's first and probably last because, you know, racism, black sheriff. (laughs) When Bart arrives on the scene, he is met with, as you'd expect, racism. But with the help of his drunken friend, the Waco Kid, he works to gain the trust of the people of Rock Ridge and prevent Headley from destroying the town. 
Right on. Yeah, I I think uh, before we go any further, Colin, I I think we need to discuss the elephant in the room. (laughs) Uh, I mean, for anyone who has not seen this movie, and like we said, 46 years, guys. So, you know, it's it's an old one. Or, Or I guess, frankly, for anyone who has seen this movie, first of all, it's a spoof movie. So that that's important to know. So us poking holes in the logic has to be taken with like a grain of salt. But second and probably more important, which you definitely uh, pointed out in your 60 second synopsis, is that this is a wildly offensive movie. It's it's incredibly racist and homophobic in its language. So, I mean, I'm not going to try to dwell too much on the language that gets used in this movie. At least because this movie is set in the Old West, I feel like there's an appropriate place for this language. However, you know, it's still very cringeworthy and very uncomfortable because, like, some of it just feels, like, absolutely gratuitous. Yeah, I'd say, like, I don't know. I didn't... Yeah, I mean, we're going to... I'll just go into... I had no idea what this movie was or what what it was about. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that it was a sp- meant to be a spoof. Mm-hmm. I thought it was just meant to be like a, I don't know, like a Western comedy, I guess. Kind of, kind of like the Ridiculous Six or something like that. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So on the first, the first watch, I was kind of like, I don't know, really taken aback. Like it's definitely a movie that I don't think anybody by today's standards would stand for, even though, and and and. With the satirical spoof nature of it, I was also trying to figure out like what is it's hard to, it was hard for me to determine what was the spoof and what was like the gratuitous mm-hmm. racism and and sexism and that kind of stuff. But yeah, it it was definitely an interesting watch for sure. Yeah, so I mean we're kind of dancing around what what's really going on here. But of course, there are many uses of the very derogatory N-word to describe black people. There's uh, uses of the very offensive Asian C-word. And of course, the homophobic F-word, which I have said before on the show, but today I am choosing not to. So in my notes from here on out, I will be replacing those words with other ones because on this show, I do like to quote lines. So... I'll be saying the word puppies anytime I quote anything with the N-word, kitties anytime it's the C-word, and birdies anytime it's the F-word. But, you know, yeah, the language in this movie, though, like I said, it's kind of justified because of the era it takes place in. But we also watched Police Academy, which used racist terms that weren't quite as strong as this. And then you also looked at the fact that with this movie, except for one Irish joke in the movie, like something like South Park is an equal opportunity offender when it comes to they don't care who they're going to poke fun at. Whereas this, Mm -hmm. it's like uh, the white guys pretty much skate by in this movie. There's a couple Jew jokes. There's a, you know, like I said, there's one Irish joke, but... For the most part, it really is minorities. And I mean, I didn't even bring them all up like because the natives also take a beating in this movie a little bit, too. So, yeah. 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 It was just it was just hard to know what what the goal was. Even watch when I watched it the second time, I knew it was a spoof. It didn't really help. Yeah. To know that it was that it was satirical. And maybe it's also because like 
I didn't grow up in the Western era. Like, I haven't watched a lot of old Western mm-hmm. movies, so I don't know what those movies were no, like. That's a fair point. Even to yeah. compare, so... But yeah, for me, as, like, basically a, basically a complete outsider, it, it was a pretty difficult watch. Yeah. Well, okay, on that note, let's jump into Blazing Saddles. It's directed by Mel Brooks, who, much like John Hughes, I was surprised to find out only has 11 directing credits. He directed The Producers, The Twelve Chairs, Young Frankenstein, which came out later the same year, Silent Movie, High Anxiety, History of the World Part 1, Spaceballs, Robin Hood Men in Tights, Life Stinks, and Dracula Dead and Loving It. Those are all his directing credits right there. It's produced by Michael Hertzberg, who was a producer on a few of his movies, Silent Movie and The Twelve Chairs, plus Johnny Dangerously Out on a Limb, Entrapment, and Memories of Me. And it's written by, well, a big team here, Mel Brooks, who has been a writer on everything he directed, plus many others. He's also the creator of Get Smart, which I'm kind of embarrassed to realize that I didn't know that. I'm sure everyone else did, and they're all screaming (laughs) at their headphones right now saying how did you not know that that's what he's known for but i guess i just didn't it's also written by andrew bergman who wrote striptease the scout fletch honeymoon in vegas and soap dish Uh, norman steinberg who wrote funny about love wise guys johnny dangerously in my favorite year alan uger who wrote Energy Crisis, Leader of the Band, 34 Episodes of Family Ties, and Richard Pryor, who obviously he's a comedian, but he's also written Bustin' Loose, and he was a writer on the Lily Tomlin show and Stanford and Son. The thing that I found interesting is I know what kind of language Richard Pryor uses in his stand-up. He was actually more responsible for the character of Mongo. He's the one that created Mongo and like all the foul language that's used didn't come from Richard Pryor. And that kind of surprised Hmm. me a little bit. Yeah, that's interesting. So we open on the Academy Award nominated song, Blazing Saddles. And I'm, I'm not being facetious at all. It was Academy Award nominated. And over some old school looking Western fonts, the lyrics of the song basically tell you everything that, that you're about to watch. And it's accompanied by whip sounds and, and words burning away to reveal an old West looking landscape. So now that the opening is done, full credits in the beginning, just like an old Western from the 50s, we are shown a railroad under construction. It's hot out in the sun and one of the Asian workers collapses. And this movie gets racist within the first two minutes with Doc the Kitty a day's pay for napping on the job. So, you know, just right out of the gate, yeah. they, they just come out with both <laughs> barrels. Yeah. I don't know. It's 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 almost funnier with when you change when you change the words. I was like, "Doctor, Doctor Kitty of Pay." It sounds so sweet, so sweet and innocent. <laughs> that's that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to take away some of the pain of the language and you know make it so that I'm not a racist on this show. So we meet Taggart, who is played by Slim Pickens, who has 172 credits. His first is from 1946 in a movie called Smokey. Uh, He was in a movie called Undercover with the KKK, 1941. Almost all of his movies are cowboy films because he was actually on the rodeo circus for about a decade earlier in his life. Most people probably remember him from Dr. Strangelove as the bomber who rode the nuke. And we also meet Lyle, who is played by Burton Gillum, 
who was in Fletch, Honeymoon in Vegas, 38 episodes of Evening Shade. Uh, he was in Back to the Future Part 3, which I definitely remember him in that part. He was the salesman of the cult. You probably still haven't seen the sequels. Nope. nope. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the, the, those two are checking on the progress of the railroad construction. And Lyle and some of the other cowboys approach a group of the black men working on the railroad and demand that they sing a good old puppy work song to which the group starts to sing some Sinatra. I'll get a kick out of you with some slightly altered lyrics. The leader of this group is our movie's big hero, Black Bart, who is played by Cleveland Little, who was in FM, Scavenger Hunt, High Risk, Once Bitten, and a whole bunch of TV. And... The group is told by our racist cowboys. No, we we mean something like Swing Low, Sweet Chariot, which they pretend they've never heard of, or Camp Town Ladies, to which they start singing a demonstration of it with, with dancing, to which Taggart reappears to tell them to stop dancing around like Kansas City birdies. So, <laughs> so five minutes in, and we've already hit all three of the the offensive words I mentioned at the top of the show. Oh. I kind of thought it was odd that they didn't go with that. Like, all I ever remember from old Bugs Bunny cartoons is the, I think it's Elmer Fudd, but it's like the, I've been working on the railroad, like that yeah. song. It just seemed like that would have fit there. Uh, it definitely would have. I, I, I even felt that as soon as I said, we see a group of people working on the railroad. <laughs> yeah. So... Tagger tells Lyle that they've been told there's some quicksand in the way of their planned route. Lyle says they should send some horses over to check it out. Horses? We can't afford to lose no horses. Send over a couple of puppies. So, at random, they choose Bart and Char... See, it, it makes it more fun, at least, right? <laughs> yeah. So at random, they choose Bart and Charlie to go check it out. Charlie is played by Charles McGregor, best known as Fat Freddy and Superfly, apparently. Several other black exploitation films as well. Bart tries to talk them out of using him by saying, you specifically asked for puppies. It's a family secret that my grandmother was Dutch. I found Cleveland Little really funny. Like, at least he's in on the joke. I don't know if you watched any of the bonus features on the DVD, but there was an interview where they're talking to the guy that plays Lyle, and he was talking about how he was very uncomfortable using some of the language in this movie, and I completely understand why, mm -hmm. but I, I guess, you know, he, he was saying this to Cleveland Little, and Cleveland Little said, look, you know, if you said this to me on the street, I would knock you out. He goes, but we're just here to have a good time and have fun. And, like, you can tell that even with the language, Cleveland Little is still having fun with this movie. Like, he's got a great character. Yeah, he. I really enjoyed him. He is good. He reminds me, for whatever, I feel like he reminds me so much of Don Cheadle. A little they bit, even kind yeah. Of, they even kind of look look really similar, but anytime I've ever seen, every time I would see him on screen, he reminded me of Don Cheadle and like the more comedic roles that he's done and, yeah. and like House of Lies and that kind of stuff. But yeah. So Bart and Charlie head out to the, on the handcart to go investigate and end up neck deep in quicksand. I do love Charlie's line of, is the world getting shorter as they're sinking? Yeah. 
Lyle and Taggart come upon them and are annoyed that they are going to need to redirect the railroad, but of course don't care about the two drowning men, and they also use a lasso to save their $400 handcart from sinking. I, I did an inflation calculator on 1874 as well. That's a $9,130 cart. <laughs> Bart luckily has a foot on the drowned rail, and he and Charlie are able to make their way back to the dry land. Taggart is dictating to Lyle about a telegram they need to send to the Attorney General Headley Lamar. And at this point, Charlie and Bart have managed to pull their way out of the quicksand after being told their break is over, of course. And while Taggart is dictating, Bart hits him in the head with a shovel. And, I mean, we get a very Mel Brooks-type joke where it's like, you know, send report that we need... Ow! So now a bandage-headed Taggart has gone to see Headley Lamar, played by Harvey Corman, who was on the Carol Burnett show, The President in Jingle All the Way, uh, History of the World Part 1, and a lot of voice work, especially in the Flintstones, where he was the voice of the Great Gazoo. Oh, nice. And after watching the movie, it's like, yeah, he you can hear the Great Gazoo in that voice. So why he went to see him in person when he had just sent a telegram, I don't understand. But logic gets thrown out quite a bit in this movie. Or is this because his message dictation was thrown off by the shovel of to the head? <laughs> he had to go see him in person because they sent the wrong message? They are discussing the fact that the railroad is going to have to redirect past a town called Rock Ridge. This will make the town worth millions. So Headley comes up with a diabolical plan to scare the residents out of town so he can buy up the land dirt cheap before the railroad gets there. I do enjoy the gags outside the window with the overworked hangman. Yeah. Like he's hanging the guy in the wheelchair or the guy on the horse. <laughs> uh, like there, there's... There's so many of the sight gags that do work, and then there's some where it's just like, I just kind of rolled my eyes and went, ugh, like this again? Yeah, I found like, <laughs> there's that, and then even some of the Foley work is a bit off. And I was trying to figure out, because, I don't know, another thing is, I don't think I've actually seen a Mel Brooks movie before. Yeah. And I was trying to figure out if, I like, I was trying to figure out where the comedy is. You know, there's lots of, like, really exaggerated facial expressions and, like, gags and that kind of stuff. But then there's also, like, yeah. the Foley work is sometimes so off or so, like, exaggerated that I was also wondering if that was just because it was the time and they yeah. weren't as talented as they are now. Yeah. Or if that was, like, on purpose and it was part of the, part of the gag and part of the comedy. Yeah, I, I mean... Spaceballs is probably one of the Mel Brooks movies that I'm most familiar with. And, and they throw in some of the same kind of jokes. But yeah, it's it definitely doesn't sound the same as this movie. Like that one is a little bit crisper in its sound. So. so yeah, they yell down to the hangman asking him if he can fit in the man who hit Taggart in the head, who is currently sitting in the jail. Oh, well, he's so overworked he won't be able to fit him until Monday. Now we go to Rock Ridge where we get a sense of the town with a song explaining town life before the posse moves in to pillage the town, which also hilariously gets narrated by the song. Yeah, I like that. That was the the first. So the first time I watched it, I actually like really struggled to pay attention 
and I totally missed out on everything in the song. So like the second time I watched it, I watched it with the subtitles on. Yeah. And it was really it was really funny to read the lyrics of the song while things are going on and stuff like that. Well, yeah, apparently the guy that they uh hired to do the opening song is someone that actually did like classic cowboy ballads for movies and they had to tell him that they they didn't tell him it was for a spoof movie. <laughs> so that they could get a more genuine performance out of him mm-hmm. because he wouldn't have done it for comedy. So after the town has been pillaged and the little old lady has been beat up and everything like that, after they've left the town, we see a town meeting in the church being run by Reverend Johnson, who is played by Liam Dunn, who has 80 credits back to That's My Man in 1947. He was in Papillon, Silent Movie, and Young Frankenstein. So they need to make a decision about what to do about their town being invaded. The sheriff has been murdered, crops burned, stores looted, cattle raped. The Reverend wants them to abandon the town, but Olson Johnson, who is played by David Huddleston, who was in Smokey and the Bandit 2, he was Grandpa Arnold in The Wonder Years, played Santa in Santa Claus the Movie, but I know him best as The Big Lebowski. Olson Johnson gives a rousing speech about not giving up and staying. All the other Johnsons, because everyone in town has the last name Johnson for some reason? Get on board. Yeah. Is this a commentary on, like, yokel inbreeding? Or, like, what's the joke? Yeah, that's what I mean. That was the the thing I struggled with throughout the entire movie, was just, I didn't understand why things were funny i knew that they were clearly meant to be funny yeah but i it's like an inside joke it's like i was watching the world's biggest inside joke and just had no point of reference (laughs) a little bit yeah unless unless johnson is just a ridiculously popular name in old westerns and i don't remember old westerns well enough but it's just it's it's a little yeah it's just messed up to me So their first requirement is to get a new sheriff. So they plan to wire the governor for him to appoint a new one. And the scene ends with dynamite getting thrown through the window, which was kind of another moment that I didn't quite understand. And so then we cut to the governor, who is played by Mel Brooks, who is an over-the-top character in an over-the-top scene that I really didn't care for much at all. Like, the intent, I'm sure, is to show how hilarious Mel Brooks is, but I gotta say, and I may get some haters for this, I really don't find Mel Brooks that funny at all. Yeah, Like, he's cross-eyed, and he's all over his secretary, like Richard Dawson on The Family Feud. And they're discussing nefarious things like buying 200,000 acres of Indian territory, who the governor calls Little Red Devils, for a box of paddle balls. The thing that I wanted explanation for was why does he have Gov painted in white on the back of his suit? Yeah. Like, why did why was that required? And if it's an abbreviation, why was there no period on it? Like, that that was another thing that kept bugging me, is it's like, well, if you're going to abbreviate it, put a period. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, they're, they're going to trade for a, a box of paddle balls, and the governor is signing documents left and right, and it's more unfunny physical comedy from Mel Brooks. The last document is a telegram from the town of Rockridge looking for a sheriff. 
But don't worry, Governor, Headley Lamar will find a suitable replacement. And you know how there's the joke with everyone calling him Hetty, and, and he keeps correcting them to Headley? Mm -hmm. the, the filmmakers were actually sued by the real Hetty Lamar for $10 million. And they decided to throw her some money out of court just, <laughs> just to appease her. So I don't know what they actually settled for, but they, they gave her some money because she sued them for, I don't know, like defamation of character or something. Yeah, I was wondering about, like, I don't know who she is. Obviously, she was like an actress of the time, but. Like, was that a dig yeah, at was it was that thirties and forties or something? Was that meant to be a dig at her the entire time? Or is it just I don't think so. I think it was just a it was just a joke of here's a funny name we can use and we'll have all this all these mistaken identity jokes. Mm. Cause really it, the joke only pays off once, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. And that's at the end. But we'll get to that. So now we get Headley alone in his office, talking to himself, trying to figure out the solution to his dilemma. Law and order is the last thing he wants. If only he could find a sheriff who so offends the citizens of Rock Ridge that his very appearance drives them out of town. And looking out the window, he sees Bart about to be hanged. And inspiration strikes. Cue maniacal laughter. <laughs> Headley takes Bart to the governor to sell the idea of appointing this black man. You'll go down in history. You'll be up for a presidency. Totally plays to the governor's ego. But he gets sold on the idea, and Bart officially is hired. Now suited up in a 70s style, full sheriff's outfit, he's looking the epitome of cool with the music to match. Big swing band music conducted by Count Bassie, who we do see in a silly moment of him passing the band in the desert. But the one thing that makes him more stylish than every other sheriff in the land is those saddlebags. Those Gucci saddlebags. <laughs> and that means it's time for Sponsorship Corner! So always on the lookout for sponsors and movies. I thought I was once again going to have to make some up, but then I didn't think of the fact that uh, it's a parody movie. So there aren't a ton, but there's a few. Blazing Saddles is brought to you by Gucci, Western Union, Coca-Cola, Martino's Bakery, and Raisinets. And I'm sure I could make an argument for a nod to Howard Johnson's hotel chain, even though in this movie, Howard Johnson is an ice cream parlor. But this has been Sponsorship Corner. I thought I thought for sure you were going to have like Johnson's ice cream, Johnson's hotels, <laughs> Johnson's pharmacy. <laughs> no, I considered it. I considered it. But considering there were some actual legitimate sponsors in this movie, I figured, ah, we'll just keep it straight into the point. Uh, the town of Rock Ridge is all set up to w welcome the new sheriff. Crowd gathered, band playing, he'll be arriving at noon. They are rehearsing the speech about extending a laurel and a hearty handshake to the new sheriff. The old prospector-looking Gabby Johnson is up on the roof keeping lookout for the arrival of the sheriff. He sees him and yells down to the gathered residents that he's almost there. And as Bart draws nearer... Gabby realizes the sheriff is a black man, and he tries to yell down to warn everyone, but in a moment of classic misunderstanding, every time he tries to say the word puppy, a bell rings and drowns him out. 
Sheriff Bart rides slowly through to the stunned looks of the onlookers. The people gathered around the stage see him. The band stops playing. The, the only thing missing, I guess, is a record scratch. <laughs> yeah. The only person who hasn't seen him yet is the guy preparing for the speech who launches into it. We extend this laurel and a hearty handshake to our new, and then he looks up, puppy. <laughs> and so Bart tries to act unfazed by this cold reception and proceeds as if everything is normal and starts reading them the letter from the government, but everyone is hostile and pulls guns on him. But being intelligent and able to outsmart the yokels of Rock Ridge, he thinks fast, and this was the first part that I actually found funny is when he pulls his own gun and holds it to his head with you know the the don't move or the puppy gets it yeah and and like i thought that the one man standoff like this is what i wanted more of i wanted much more of this kind of stuff because it just shows how great cleavon little was this this comedy worked unlike a lot of the other comedy as far as i'm concerned yeah no i'd agree and he he's like he even says the line like he's crazy he'll do it <laughs> he manages to confuse the yokels long enough to get himself into the sheriff's station and safe and so the town has another meeting about what to do about the new sheriff they decide to compose a letter to the governor the leading asshole in the state where they wish to express extreme displeasure with their new sheriff back at the sheriff's station Bart is settling in, and he hears a noise. Sounds like the drunken number two must be awake. And we get a very funny introduction of Jim, the Waco kid, who is hanging upside down. And, like, another scene that, again, I wanted more of this. This was something where I found if this was the comedy I liked. But Bart asks, are we awake? And he says, I'm not sure yet. Are we black? Yes, we are. (laughs) Then we must be awake and very puzzled. So... You know, like Jim, the Waco kid is the first one who has used the word black instead of anything much more offensive. But he is played by Gene Wilder, who is in Funny About Love, See No Evil, Hear No Evil, The Woman in Red, Stir Crazy, and Young Frankenstein later this year. And of course, he was Willy Wonka in Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. You know, I I will say I actually prefer Charlie and the Chocolate Factory as a movie because of how much more faithful it is to the book, except that I like Gene Wilder so much more as Willy Wonka. Like Gene Wilder, he's one of those guys that every time I see a Gene Wilder movie, he he makes me laugh quite a bit. I really like Gene Wilder. Yeah. I don't I think I think probably because the only thing I've ever seen him in is is Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory. Mm-hmm. And I just find the character of Willy Wonka creepy for some reason. That like, Well, he's definitely that. That even even when he appears on screen in this movie, I was like, man, he's just creepy. <laughs> <laughs> and I think also because he, he just kind of like, he's just always just sitting around drunk yeah. for the first like little bit of the movie. That he's very odd. I wonder how much Gene Wilder had to drink. Because, like, he slams back a couple of 40s. <laughs> like, he just, that poor guy, like, was, would have been sloshing around depending on how many takes there were. Bart offers Jim help, to which Jim says, I need all the help I can get because he's an alcoholic with a bit of a death wish. Sheriff Bart takes an immediate liking to this guy, letting him out of the cell to just kind of hang out in the station. <laughs> he's a guest in this jail and should be treated as such. And so what do you want to do? 
Jim tells him that there are two pastimes he enjoys, playing chess and screwing. And Bart says, let's play chess then. <laughs> so while they're chessing, uh, Bart finds out. Yeah, that's right. I just made it a yes. verb. Okay. <laughs> Bart, Bart finds out that Jim is the legendary Waco kid, fastest hands in the West, and he's skeptical. So Jim shows him his steady right hand. But the problem is I shoot with this hand and shows him his very shaky left but then shows him how fast he actually is. You know, put your hand on either side of the king. And when I say go, try to grab it. And so he says go. And Bart closes his hand thinking he won. And Jim has the king in his holster. I liked Bart and Jim. I liked their bromance in this movie. And they were the parts that I enjoyed in this movie. And yeah, I got to say, that's that's pretty much it. I I wish it was more Bart and Jim. <laughs> yeah, I'm actually surprised that it wasn't. Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of Headley. Yeah, and and like Jim, it, it takes them so long to introduce him too. Like we're like 20 minutes into the movie when Jim first shows up, and it's been filled with Headley Lamar stuff, and unfortunately Mel Brooks stuff. So now it's backstory time, and we find out that Jim decided to hang up his guns after getting shot in the ass by a six-year-old. Bart, meanwhile, gets an actual flashback scene by being part of a wagon train when the entire Sioux Nation comes over the hill to attack. Being the only black people involved with this convoy, though, they weren't actually with them while all the white folk circled their wagons to defend against the Sioux. Bart's family was left to circle by themselves. All, all the Sioux presumably slaughter the white guys before turning their attention on Bart's family. That, that, scene, that scene made me laugh. The one where it shows their, their, like, the, their, their sole wagon just running just in a running circle. Just running in a circle, yeah. <laughs> so that's where I say there were some funny sight gags. And yeah, that was one of them. The chief of the Sioux, who is played by a cultural appropriating Mel Brooks, lets them go. That was a weird one for me. I'm just, I remember I was watching that scene and I, at first I was impressed because I thought everything like looked really good. Yeah. But then as I was looking closer at, at them, I was like, oh, those are white guys. Were they all white guys? Okay. I think so. Yeah. And then I realized that that one was Mel Brooks. And I was just like, man. I, yeah. See, I was trying to, I was trying <laughs> to figure it out with his sidekicks, whether whether they were all white guys or whether it was just Mel Brooks that, you know, one of the three. Yeah. It's now nighttime and we see Lyle and his gang of thugs sitting around a campfire eating beans in probably the most well-known scene of Blazing Saddles. Even people that haven't seen Blazing Saddles have probably at least heard of this scene. I don't know whether you had, Colin, of the campfire farting scene. I hadn't. No. But like this scene, I I remember it, it's paid to uh, homage to in a Knight's Tale. If you watch until after the credits, there's a post credit scene where they're all sitting around the campfire farting. Okay, that's funny. I've watched that movie so many times. I don't think I've ever watched. I didn't. I never knew there was an after credit scene. Yeah, sometimes you gotta stick around. That that one was just a dumb luck one that I found out about. It was one that I had a friend who's dad always insisted on waiting all the way through the credits and she told me there was a post credit scene so it wasn't until i saw it on dvd that i realized that oh hey look there is an extra scene but this was also a scene that the studio really wanted to cut but that's essentially the point of the scene getting a whole bunch of fart jokes 
And they are also discussing the new sheriff in town and who wants to kill him when it gets suggested to sick Mongo upon the town. And Mongo is played by Alex Karras, who was in Victor Victoria, Porky's, Jacob Tutu in The Hooded Fang, where he's the Hooded Fang. And he was also a defensive tackle for 12 years with the Detroit Lions between 1958 and 1970 and spent three years as a commentator on Monday Night Football as well. So that's our, what, third Fourth football player that we've covered on this show, John Matuzak, Bubba Smith. Was there any others? No, I can't think. I can't think of any other it's, ones. It's those three for sure. We go back to the morning at the jail where Jim just sort of lives now and is shaving and telling Bart about a letter he received earlier addressed to the deputy Spade. So I guess he gets deputized here, and they seal the deal by smoking a joint together. Bart decides he can't just hide at the jail and goes out to meet the people of Rock Ridge. And within seconds of him leaving, he encounters his first citizen, a little old lady, who, when he says good morning, responds with, up yours, puppy. (laughs) This has definitely taken the wind out of his sails, and we see Jim consoling him, which is like a genuinely sweet moment. But then the ground starts shaking. Mongo has arrived, riding his long horn bull, which the ass cheeks of this bull are... They say yes, no. Yeah. And that's never explained. Right? That was another thing that I was bothered by. I was just... I didn't understand, and I thought maybe it would come into play later, but it just never does. Yeah. Like, maybe there's, like, a bullshit joke that's in there somewhere that, you know... I, yeah, it must have been like in a cutout scene that, yeah, that joke never pays off. I have no idea what's going on. But then he ties up his bull outside the saloon and has someone tell him, well, he can't park there. And Mongo responds by punching out his horse, which was actually kind of a funny stunt. That was uh... like, that was the craziest scene in the entire movie to me. I, it looked, it. I'll just say this. It looks so good that I actually had to Google afterwards to see if he actually hit the horse. Yeah. <laughs> because I because I was A, like, not sure that that was cool. But then also, if he, if he did do it, then I was very impressed that he was strong enough to knock out a horse. <laughs> but then I was also impressed in finding out that this horse is just, was just trained to fall like that. Yeah. Because that horse... I mean, I'll use a wrestling term, but that horse sells like nothing I've ever seen before. Like yeah. that horse sold that punch really well. well and, and when when they're pillaging Rock Ridge in the beginning, there is one point where a horse chases them up onto one of the boardwalks and then he ends up like falling off the boardwalk. Yeah. And I was wondering whether that was the same horse or whether that was an accident that this horse ended up falling over because he fell over the same way. But I was wondering whether that horse in the the beginning slipped yeah the first one i don't know the first one looked more accidental to me and really it looked really painful for that horse yeah yeah and then i found it funny because later on in the the like the the big melee at the end there's a scene where a horse gets flipped over but you can clearly tell it's just like a fake sawhorse yeah yeah and so i was wondering if maybe they had they had it used up all their horse stunts by that point but yeah so 
Mongo has arrived and he goes after punching out the horse, he goes into the saloon and everyone is terrified and realizing the town needs help. They actually go to their new sheriff for help. Bart starts putting on his holster, but Jim tells him he's not going to need that. If you shoot Mongo, you'll just make him angry, which was a funny line. I thought realizing that coming in and trying to take Mongo by force isn't a feasible option. Bart has to get creative and that's what he's good at. Good at thinking on his feet. And instead he poses as a Western union guy. He has a delivery for Mr. Mongo, a box of candy. And he exits with his ears plugged and the Looney Tunes themes playing. And which is very appropriate considering the very Bugs Bunny type situation here. Because mm-hmm. Mongo opens the box of candy and gets blown up. But that's that's kind of what I was thinking about all of Bart's schemes throughout this movie. Like the don't move or he gets it part where he pulls the gun on himself or or this part. I thought, man, this is just this is straight up Looney Tunes. And then they actually give a nod to it. Yeah, for sure. So we cut to Headley in the bathtub with Taggart washing him. Uh <laughs> <laughs> They're discussing the news that Mongo has failed in his task, but with a much more poetic flourish than what I just said, uh, because Tagger tells him, gee, Mr. Lamar, you use your tongue better than a $20 whore, which inflation calculator, $456 whore. (laughs) Headley has an epiphany, new plan. When the beast fails, it's time to bring in a beauty and he knows just who to ask. So back at the jail, we now see Mongo passed out and Wait, chained we're gonna, to the... We're just going to pass over his weird little frog frog oh, obs- like <laughs> obsession, his little toy frog. Where's my frog? Where's my frog? Yeah, that, and, that was and another... Yeah, what the fuck? And the point where he sends Taggart into the tub to look for the frog and yeah. Taggart grabs his dick. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, I'm sorry. Yeah, I, I shouldn't have skipped past that, but I, I didn't write that one down, but... Very true. Definitely worth pointing out that, yeah, that was a very what-the-fuck moment. So back at the jail, we now see Mongo passed out and chained to the bars. Jim and Bart are getting dressed up to go out for the night, and there's a knock on the window. The old lady who previously called Bart a puppy has baked him an apology pie, but of course she would appreciate it if he didn't go around telling people. And so Bart is enjoying being an underground hero, so, leaving Mongo chained up, they head out to watch the performance of Lily Von Stoop. Headley has also gone to see Lily Von Stoop, except for he is going to her dressing room. Lily is played by Madeline Kahn, who is in Young Frankenstein, History of the World Part 1, Mixed Knots, Nixon, A Bug's Life, Clue. Her last credit is the series Cosby, which ran from 1996 to 2000. It was Cosby's second series. And she was actually nominated for a Best Supporting Oscar for this role. Hmm. Yeah. I don't know how I feel about that. Like, she was funny. Like, she did do a good job, but it's just Best Supporting Actress, eh? Like, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it was the 1970s. I have to think that roles for actresses might have been, you know, not not what they are today. Definitely not plentiful, yeah. Not plentiful. So, I don't know what, what the what kind of crop they would have had to pick from. But yeah, it is strange that I, I would have said this, this role, I wouldn't even necessarily call her role supporting actress. She's like in a couple scenes, basically. Yeah. But when you compare her to all just the, the, the gaggle of women in this movie, I mean, we've got little old lady and yeah. we've got busty secretary. And I mean, yeah, 
All of them. Yeah. All of them. <laughs> she, she's the only she's the only woman with a name. <laughs> she did lose to Ingrid Bergman for Murder on the Orient Express, in case you were curious. Mm. H- Headley wants to hire her to seduce the sheriff and then break his heart by abandoning him. So her burlesque show starts and she sings the song I'm Tired showing why she earned that Oscar nomination. It was a pretty fun performance. But at the end, everyone in the audience shoots their guns in the air. This seems problematic to me. Yeah. (laughs) After the show, she sends word out to the sheriff to come back to her dressing room. And when he arrives, she proceeds with what she was hired to do and seduces him in the dark. Is it true what they say? She asks. And then you hear the fly tear open. Oh, it's true. It's true. And there was one line here that Mel Brooks actually agreed to cut. Like, even though he had been fighting the studio for, like, so many things in this movie, he did cut a line here where it was Bart saying, I'm sorry to disappoint you, but you're sucking on my arm. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my and I mean, I know you have to get past 1974 censors, but it's like hearing the line that was cut made me laugh harder than almost any other line in this movie. <laughs> it's like, that was the one to keep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, she plays with his schnitz and Gruben and in the morning feeds him schnitz and Gruben. He needs to leave for work and her plan has backfired because she doesn't want him to leave. He he's seduced her. And he's so smooth when he says, Oh, Peterson, baby. <laughs> and, <laughs> and he leaves with her saying, what a nice guy he is. Back at the jail, they've gotten word that Hedley Lamar has sent a release order for Mongo. So they release him, but they don't have to unlock him because he just breaks the chains, which was another sight gag that actually worked for me. The fact that a high-class guy wants Mongo released gets them asking, well, why? Why would he want this? Well, Mongo has earned a respect for this sheriff because this sheriff was actually able to subdue him. He wants to stay, and they decide to ask him what Headley is up to. All he knows is something about where the choo-choo goes. Mongo only pawn in the game of life. Well then, Jim and Bart decide to go do some snooping around the railroad construction. So they meet up with Charlie, who's who lets them know the train was rerouted and will go through Rock Ridge. And while he's talking with the workers, the posse with Lyle and Taggart shows up. They don't actually know who the new sheriff is. So when they see Bart and they think he's just escaped from his hanging, the whole posse pull their guns on him. Bart warns them that he's the sheriff of Rock Ridge. And Jim does his Waco kid thing and shoots all their guns out of their hands without even looking like he's moved. Which, this is a gag I love. Because they could have just fast-forwarded him actually shooting. But I think it's funnier this way, where it's just kind of like being a childish kid back in, like, grade three. And it's like, oh, I'm the fastest man in the world. I can run around the world. You know, and you, you you, like, just shake your head and it's like... Ah, see, I'm back already. See how fast I was? Right? <laughs> like that kind of thing. Like yeah. that's sort of how this is, is like, yeah, his hands are still there and all the damage has been done. Yeah, no, I I liked that one a lot. Yeah. I thought I thought it was funny, it worked for me. Yeah. So back to Headley Lamar, who is complaining that all his plans have backfired. He's like a silent film villain, like 
with without the mustache twirling. <laughs> yeah, he, he, he is very like snidely whiplash. You're right. There we go. Yeah, that's that's the one I'm thinking of. Yeah, especially now that he also has like Lily von Stoop tied up. Like, yeah. But he has a new plan. He's going to recruit an army of every vicious criminal and gunslinger around. He's taking an ad out for them to come to tryouts and he'll pay them $100 a day. Inflation, 2282 bucks a day. Not bad for a day's work. Yeah, not too shabby. Yeah, I'd, I'd take that. Back in Rock Ridge, Bart and Jim are returning from their investigating. The whole town has packed their possessions and signs and are ready to evacuate town. Bart insists that they give him 24 hours to come up with a brilliant plan. They'll do it for Randolph Scott. And that makes everyone stare off into the distance and repeat, Randolph Scott. I don't get this joke at all. Yeah. Oh my God. Like I even looked up Randolph Scott. He's He's an actor from sometime from like the 40s or something like i i don't understand this joke at all bart and jim have seen the ad for tough guys and decide to go do some more investigation we see the silly ragtag lineup of thugs stereotypical mexicans arabs kkk members motorcycle ish people that have handlebars attached to their belt buckles german ss soldiers like a bunch of goofy sight gags i uh, <laughs> a big a big lineup of guys waiting to get deputized or whatever we get one pair of mexican recruits who gives us the good old badges we don't need no stinking badges line headley who is running all of this gets upset at one person in line for having gum and not bringing enough for everyone so he shoots him <laughs> it just gets silly. Yeah. Bart and Jim decide they they need a disguise, so they lure out the KKK guys whose robes have a happy face and have a nice day on the back because uh, it's it's silly, I guess. I don't know. But to lure them out, Jim says, "Yoo-hoo, fellas, look what I found!" And Bart sticks his head out from behind the rocks they're hiding behind and says, "Where are the white women at?" <laughs> 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 so for every like really tasteless joke there are some really good ones they they disguise themselves in the clown outfits and it's very funny when they get to the front of the line and they notice bart's hands and jim tries to cover up by saying i told you to wash your hands after that last cross burning and then starts wiping at his hands saying oh see there it's coming off <laughs> <laughs> But they get unmasked, so they can't infiltrate the group, and more importantly, have to run. And now for my next impression, Jesse Owens, he says as he takes off. Successfully evading the thugs, they go back to Bart's railroad friends for help, waking up Charlie in the middle of the night with his hand over his mouth, and they recruit him and all of the other guys to come to Rock Ridge for assistance. And then we're back with the town inhabitants, meeting them in the middle of nowhere. And Bart lets the residents know his plan. They are going to build an exact replica of Rock Ridge a mile away in the hopes to fool the posse into storming that one instead of the real one. Authentic right down to every rock and bush. But there's no way they'll be able to get it done in one night. And that's when Bart reveals his secret weapon, the railroad construction workers. All they need to do in return is to make sure that they're all given land after they win. Give land to the puppies and kitties? Fine, but not the Irish. And then they set out, out to work. So there, there's the one, you know, <laughs> white person slam in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> 
It's morning, and we're back with Hedley Lamar, who is swearing in his new posse with the classic silly comedy trope of I, your name, pledge allegiance to Hedley Lamar and to the evil for which he stands. Now go do that voodoo that you do so well. And But I, I, do, I do like... This is one of those ones where I half like the Hedley Lamar joke because it's the you know, pledge allegiance to Hedley Lamar and they all say Hedy Lamar and then he goes, it's Hedley! And they all scream, it's Hedley! Yeah. So it, that was one where it, it kind of worked. So we're back to the fake rock ridge where everyone is proud of the work they accomplished overnight. A perfect replica until it hits Bart. They need to populate the town to pull off this ruse. We need to make dummies. And so the residents are set on the task while Bart, Jim, and Mongo head off to stall the posse. Their plan... They build a fake toll booth along the trail, which was a pretty hilarious moment because <laughs> like, the posse all gets to the toll booth and realize no one has a dime for the toll. <laughs> so they have to send someone back to get a shitload of dimes. <laughs> so that that was one of the parts where okay this movie is starting to get a little extra silly because it's a toll booth in 1874 and, and then like in a minute it's just gonna go like bonkers off the rails yeah i was gonna say it's just <laughs> again it was just i didn't understand i don't know Maybe I'm not smart. Maybe I'm not. This movie is just a little bit over my head in terms of satire. But man, from from this point on, it just gets banana sandwich to the nth level. And <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, and I mean, maybe it's more maybe it would have been topical in 1974. Like maybe that's why we're feeling so dumb is because we're not 46 years old, either of us, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, a dime, by the way, is about two fifty today. So, so they they made a lot of money off of this little scam that they pulled. So they've managed to delay everyone long enough because when they do go get dimes, they still have to go through one at a time. <laughs> but finally, the posse arrives in the fake town, riding up and down the street, firing their guns. The mannequins are fooling them for now. Part two of the plan is to set off dynamite now that the posse is all together. The residents are all up on a hill overlooking, and Bart pushes the plunger of the dynamite, and just like Wiley e. Coyote, it just doesn't work for him. But we're going to need Jim to shoot the dynamite from where they are. It's about this time that the posse has realized that it's a fake. They've been suckered when, boom, Jim starts exploding the TNT. Pandemonium breaks out all over the, the fake rock ridge, and the residents charge down upon the posse, and there's a big brawl in the middle of the main street of this fake town, and, and then it just gets silly because the camera starts panning out, and it breaks the reality of the situation by showing that this is all taking place on a studio backlot. And then the camera continues its movement, panning across to a soundstage before revealing what's going on inside that soundstage. There's a big old-fashioned Hollywood musical number being performed called The French Mistake. And we watch as the director, played by Dom DeLuise, calls cut because they're doing the choreography wrong. And then it gets uncomfortably offensive. Like, the racism, as bad as some of the language is, like I said at the beginning, I feel like some of it can be justified. Can in quotation marks. <laughs> Big asterisks beside that can. It can be justified. 
But here, where Dom DeLuise screams at them that they're doing it wrong, watch me, birdies, you got that? And then when they all say yes with their exaggerated, lispy gay voices, Dom DeLuise makes the comment of, it sounds like steam escaping. Like, <clears throat> they get super homophobic in this scene. Like, the homophobia, like, when I said that the racism is gratuitous, the homophobia in this scene is is beyond gratuitous. Yeah. Like, yeah. So take two of this musical number begins when when suddenly the cowboy fight spills onto the soundstage. And in the melee, the, the director gets punched by Taggart, who says, I work for Mel Brooks. So <laughs> all the dancers join in with the brawl, with the line, come on, girls. And if I didn't make it clear before, all these dancers are men. And so we get a bunch of stereotypical homophobic sight gags here, like the dancers slapping or screaming and jumping in the water, where two other dancers are doing some synchronized swimming. Uh, and, and some of them are being called miserable pansies. And just, oh boy. <laughs> like, it's just, it, they, they slap you hard in the face with this one scene where it's just like, let's take every anti-gay joke we can think of and cram it all into three minutes mm -hmm. yeah it was wild <laughs> yeah the expanded fight now spills into the studio commissary and turns into a bit of a food fight as well and now hitler is in the mix too because why not and eventually the commissary isn't big enough to contain this war going on. So it spills out into the street with everyone running out the front gates of the studio. There, there's a guy in this scene where he's just standing outside the studio and they couldn't get him to leave their shot. So instead they just had him sign a, oh, like waiver, a waiver or yeah. whatever. Like he, yeah. Uh, so, so he's in the movie, but yeah, he wasn't actually paid in the movie. He just had to like sign his rights away. <laughs> but Hedley Lamar, who is still sort of following the story of the movie because he knows he's being chased by Sheriff Bart, hails a taxi and instructs the cab to drive him off this picture. And then Bart comes chasing out the front gate on a horse and chases after him. Headley's final destination is Grauman's Chinese Theater, where the marquee advertises that Blazing Saddles is playing. This is one of those jokes that, like I said, in Spaceballs, Spaceballs does the exact same thing, where they start watching Spaceballs the movie to figure out what to do next. <laughs> we finally get a payoff on the running joke of Headley Lamar here, where he's walking into the theater and and there's a couple of tourists outside the theater commenting on Hedy Lamar's handprints in the cement and and Hed, Hedley automatically says it's Hedley as he rushes into the theater i mean at the ticket booth he tries to get a student discount which i thought was also kind of a funny line and then he rushes past the cows in the lobby i don't understand the running joke with the cows and i guess the fact that they're in this modern theater is supposed to be the big payoff in the end maybe I yeah like I I commented to my wife as I was watching that I was like the when you see that first scene when they're in the bar and the cows are in the bar I was just like I told her I looked at her I was like this is funny for some reason but I do not know why <laughs> like I do not know why this is funny <laughs> yeah for some reason that's definitely right 
He he buys some raisinets and settles himself down in the theater. On on screen, he watches as Bart arrives outside the theater, and then he decides to run and outside the theater encounters Bart, and Headley tries to weasel his way out of the fight by saying he's unarmed, so Bart puts his gun away, and Headley pu- pulls his minigun that he shot the gum chewer with. But it doesn't matter. Bart shoots him dead, and Jim shows up to the aftermath of this duel and says... They should go inside and watch the end of the movie. I hope it's a happy ending, he says. So now we get the ending where everyone is sad because Bart has decided the town doesn't need him anymore. And they've come around to the idea of a black sheriff. And he starts riding off into the sunset when he passes Jim. He asks Bart, where are you headed, cowboy? He says, nowhere special. Nowhere special. Always wanted to go there. And so they start riding off into the sunset together but not before dismounting their horses and then getting into a town car and letting that drive off into the sunset instead. The end. (laughs) The merciful end. (laughs) Yeah, like, once they go back into the reality of the movie, I don't understand why they bring back the car joke, right? Like, it's like, okay. uh, Yeah. Anyway, folks, that's Blazing Saddles. Now, Colin... (laughs) this might blow your mind (laughs) on imdb it scored a 7.7 out of 10 has a meta score of 73 both of those scores are higher than home alone from a few weeks ago (laughs) on rotten tomatoes it has a mind-bogglingly high 88 percent on the tomato meter and an audience rating Oh, fucking 91%. But Colin, those are just numbers. Why do people love this movie? Give us some words. Unless you just found only hated. (laughs) (laughs) No, No, I found some people who love it. So I'm going to start. I only got my one favorite critic here, Roger Ebert. So Roger Ebert, Chicago Sun-Times, top critic on Rotten Tomatoes says... It's a crazed grab bag of a movie that does everything to keep us laughing except hit us over the head with a rubber chicken. <laughs> yeah, they they Which, have sure. they, they have a rubber frog instead. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so the rest of the reviews come from uh, audience members from Rotten Tomatoes okay. here. So super reviewer Isaac H gave it 2 out of 5 stars and he said it's got a few particularly memorable gags, but Blazing Saddles padded runtime leaves the impression that Mel Gibson and company simply ran out of ideas about halfway through. <laughs> I bring this one up only because Isaac H is deemed a super reviewer, and I don't know if maybe he reviews so much that his autocorrect just went Mel Gibson instead of <laughs> Mel Brooks. Maybe that's maybe that's a reason, a reasonable excuse, but I mean, come on, double check your posts here, friend. Yeah, <laughs> ever since ever since I started doing notes on this show, some of the autocorrect options that I get just blow my <laughs> blow my mind sometimes. So that's possible. But yeah, yeah, not Mel Gibson. <laughs> yeah. Andrew A's sentiments would uh, kind of mirror my own. He gave it one and a half stars out of five. He says, I've tried this movie three times in the past 10 years because it just seems like the type of movie I would enjoy. And every time I come away with maybe one or two laughs for the whole film. I believe every topic is fair play for comedy, even race, but this movie is just not very funny. I think it's way overrated. <laughs> yep. Yep. I can I can agree with that one too. 
And then a lot of a lot of the reviews, the more recent reviews, are kind of in this vein. So Lee P, five out of five, says a high point in the career of Mel Brooks. This is laugh out loud funny that is sure to offend the politically correct crowd of today, which is like icing on the cake. <laughs> Matt D, four out of five stars, says, I actually don't think this is even close to being Mel Brooks's funniest film, but damn if it isn't his gutsiest. For a satire from the mid-70s, this is still a blazing hot piece of commentary on race relations in America, and while I wish we could relegate the topic as a thing of the past, it is sadly still every bit as powerful and true today. Trent M. says, Blazing Saddles is hilarious Western comedy movie filled with racist and sexist remarks that are jokes, and as long as the audience can understand their jokes, it is a great movie. If one is easily offended, do not watch it. But overall, it was a great movie filled with many laughs and great acting. Great Uh, acting. (laughs) Yep. There's three people in this movie that I would say are give great performances. Yeah, there, uh, yeah, I shouldn't be so harsh. There are a couple great performances. Yeah, it's they're just so overshadowed by the ones that aren't. <laughs> yeah, this this one I kind of liked. Trey S says one of the best comedies of all time. This movie would never be made in today's culture, but that would explain why a majority of the comedy films coming out nowadays are crap. <laughs> Mel Brooks cemented his spot as a comedy genius with this film. Steve M says biting political commentary mixed with Brooks's signature humor makes this a classic add to it that Richard Pryor who wrote a good portion of the script and that negates any cry of uncomfortable racism by weak-minded fools it's a shame that more people don't see that this is Brooks jabbing racists right in the face while they unwittingly laugh Uh uh-huh I, you know, I wonder how many of these reviewers are white. Yeah. <laughs> this one, I mean, you like Spaceballs. I know, I guess I just know that Spaceballs is one of his more funny movies. And this Garen M says, it's funny in all the way Spaceballs wasn't. Oh my. Which I thought, it's like kind of like a backhanded, <laughs> backhanded positive. And then uh, the last one I have is from Landon J, five out of five stars. Totally hilarious. As a country boy, I could not stop laughing. Loads of raunchy humor and satire that would give a modern social justice nut or liberal a brain aneurysm. It's just awesome. Five out of five. I've seen it four times now. And that's what those are the reviews. Oh, boy. Yeah, I... I... I don't I don't even know what to say about this movie. I mean, I I think I I think I've kind of through how I've talked about this movie have kind of shown how I feel. You know, Spaceballs and Robin Hood Men of Tights are two of my favorites. I've seen Young Frankenstein quite a few times as well and actually only recently watched that a couple of years ago cuz I appeared in a stage production of Young Frankenstein the musical and The musical is so much funnier than the movie itself. And so I say that I love Men in Tights and I love Spaceballs, but I don't know anymore because I thought I loved this movie. Hmm. And on this watch, it's just like, I loved about half this movie. I, I think that's about how far I would go. Like, I totally get what some of those reviews are saying where it's, you know, like, okay, you're slapping racism in the face. Like you're, you know, you're, you're using the language to try to make a point. And I don't, I don't disagree with that statement, but 
the spoof aspects of everything i just i i did not find the spoof aspects funny yeah i loved the relationship between bart and jim i you know and uh, there were some smatterings but for the people that say like this is the funniest comedy of all time it's no i don't think it is yeah it's funny because i think my wife would echo your sentiments when I told her we were watching this movie, she was kind of excited because she said this was one of her favorite movies Yeah, growing up as a kid that her family would watch. As we started to watch it, I was just like, I'm black, she's black. I, and I was just like, this was your, fa- this is one of your favorite movies? You watch this with your family? Like, yeah, I was like, you watch this with your family? Like, yeah. my mom would have never let me watch this movie, I don't think. Yeah. But... I don't know. For my personal opinion of it, I feel like I almost feel unqualified to even give it an opinion because I just think I just fundamentally don't understand it. Yeah. Like I said multiple times, I, it's like the comedy I barely understood. Like, there was just so many things I just didn't. I agree with the one review, I think, where they talk about like they just threw everything at you, like every type of gig that you could think of was in it, but it was just. All, the best thing I could say was like it was like you had to be there, yeah, to really get it. I just yeah. I just didn't understand. There was like some inside aspect of it that I I felt I was missing the whole way through. And even even with the the whole idea of it being satirical or like poking fun, it's it's almost like watching this movie now is like watching it out of context. Yeah, like I don't know if maybe I watched it in 1974, a lot of things would have made more sense to me, but. Watching it now and having never watched it before and having zero idea of what was happening at the time or like what Western movies were like or even race relations for that matter. I mean, I know people were racist, but to me, I watched this movie and I'm like, oh, yeah, it's just it's just, again, really gratuitous racism, really gratuitous sexism, gratuitous homophobia. And it just... It doesn't come off as satire yeah. when I watch uh, it. One hundred percent. You know what I mean? Like it just because because I'm watching it out of context, out of the time. It doesn't come off as satirical. It just comes off as gratuitous and like they're. It doesn't come off like they're poking fun at races. It just comes off as they're being racist. Yeah. Well, and, and that that's part of the reason why I wondered if you watched the bonus stuff because, you know, the the DVD that that we both watched this off of is the 30th anniversary DVD and there's there is a segment on there where they're interviewing people about this movie when they're talking about the language that they were going to use in this movie they've got absolutely no problem just dropping the n bomb in in their interviews by saying oh yeah they didn't want us to say puppies yeah. right like and but like just drop it in this interview like it's absolutely nothing and so 30th anniversary well this was 16 years ago that this documentary was made mm-hmm. and i'm just thinking wow even 16 years ago like to do it in the context of the movie is one thing but for them to just so casually throw words like that around in these interviews it was just like holy shit that that almost made me more co- uncomfortable than the movie itself yeah but yeah, it's just it, it's just hard to it was a hard because I think it it's like I don't know, it's it's in like the like American like National Film Library or whatever as like an important film yeah, the, of the time. Yeah, the Library of Congress, yeah. So it's clearly like a culturally important movie, but I could not 
tell you why. And maybe I just need yeah, to. Forty-six years later. Maybe I no just idea. need to do more research and like watch those special features and like do more research about it. I mean, I'm not going to because I don't really care at the end of the day. But like, no, no, neither. Do but I. it's just, yeah, it was just strange. It was just a really strange movie for me to watch and try to understand. Like, why is again? Why is this funny? Was the, was probably the question that that went through my head the entire time. Yeah, for for me, at the core of this movie, there's a great story there. Mm -hmm. There is a fantastic story there of taking the idea of trying to offend the residents of this town by bringing in the last person that they would want, a black sheriff in 1874. You know, like, this is what, like 10 years after slavery was abolished, right? Like, you know, like the, the time period and the racism, like... There, There is a fun story there and the relationship between Bart and Jim, but then they just go off on all these tangents that take away from, like, the good story that's going on. Like, I wanted more of that good story yeah. and less Headley Lamar, and, and it suffers from the same problem that... Uh, you know, happens. I, if I remember correctly, men in tights and spaceballs kind of have the same problem where they don't really know how to end the movie, so it devolves into chaos yeah. for a little while. Yeah, that's what I was gonna say. I think that I agree with you. I think if they had focused more on Bert and like Waco Kid and their story and and like how he was gonna like turn the town around. Yeah, and. Really, it falls apart for me at that point when the camera pans away and yep. they show. Th- after that, the movie is basically ruined, in my yeah, opinion. At, the, at, at that, that point, point, it's like, fuck this, I'm going because home. Because it doesn't, it, yeah, it, it doesn't <laughs> even resolve well. It's such a terrible ending. It's like, it's like, it's like they actually just gave up on their own movie. And I don't know. And again, I don't know if that's meant to be satire of some sort, but like, yeah. But I think you could have actually had. Because you come back at the end and you show the townsfolk are like all on his side and everything, mm-hmm. but it's kind of it's kind of ruined by that whole. You don't actually get to see why, why, yeah, yeah. yeah you and you don't so... get to see the growth, yeah. And I mean, like with something like Spaceballs, from what I remember of it, because it's been a while since I've seen that one as well. It it is very much more clearly a satire or a parody movie the whole way through, and. It doesn't have these parts where you've got like more of a straight comedy Mm -hmm. compared to like, it doesn't blend the different styles of comedy as much as this one does. Like this one goes from slapstick to satire to, to like a genuine comedy. Whereas like, you know, Spaceballs, it's just kind of goofy the whole way through from what I remember. Yeah. You know, so so at least it's like that one was consistent, whereas this one was inconsistent and yeah, it was only certain parts that I really liked. Yeah, it's weird to me, like, also just think because I know Gene Wilder is, like, kind of that a leading man type guy. But it's, like, because he gets saddled as, like, the sidekick to the black character, I felt... And it just seemed really clear they didn't want Bert to be the main guy, which I feel like he should have been. Yeah. It's a it's a really odd choice to make Headley the main dude. Yeah. It It kind of, like, sets the movie off at the wrong start. Like, it's kind of weird to have your antagonist be the main character. Yeah, well, <laughs> Snidely Whiplash is not the star <laughs> of Dudley yeah. Do-Right. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. 
So, so uh, I don't know. The, weird, uh, weird, weird movie. <laughs> now, uh, yeah, for me, I mean, we've got 70s and 80s and 90s. I still, it just blows my mind that, like, we both love Home Alone, and this is this is rated higher than those, and I think this is rated higher than Die Hard, and, like, you know, so many of these movies that we've watched lately that you and I absolutely actually enjoy, mm-hmm. like, 91%, what the fuck is that? Colin, where does it fall for you? Again, I don't even know where to begin. You have trouble rating it, and I completely understand that. The one thing I'm wondering, though, is are you glad that you at least saw it? Knowing like the cultural impact that Blazing Saddles has on on the world, the fact that it's in the Library of Congress, like you know, you you may not get it. You may think that it's smarter than us because <laughs> I don't get it either. But are you at least glad that you've seen it? Yeah, I'd say so. Like it's definitely an interesting watch. Yeah, I don't really have any. I didn't really have any reference for it to begin with. It's not really a movie that I'd heard a lot about. So I mean. If I had never watched it, I probably could have just taken it or leave it, whatever. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I never think it's bad to watch, to try a movie out at least one time and see what it's like. Yeah. You know, I'm I'm always kind of thankful for the experience to like watch something new and kind of see what it's all about. So I would kind of lump this movie in that. <laughs> I, de- it, I will say that it definitely made me want to go watch more Mel Brooks movies. And just see. Yeah. <laughs> Because I'm, I've always been interested in watching Spaceballs, and I, I kind of would guess that, uh, that Spaceballs would have been a better entry point, and maybe I would have gotten a little bit more mm-hmm. out of Blazing Saddles. So, yeah, I definitely, the one thing I'll say about this movie is I definitely will go back now and try to watch at least a couple more Mel Brooks movies, most likely Spaceballs and probably uh, Robin Hood Men in Tights are the yeah. two that come to uh, mind. Th- those would be my two recommendations for sure. I honestly don't know how to rate it. I think I would I would rate it like yeah. Out of 10 yeah. I would give it a 2. Like I don't really it's one of yeah. those movies I think it has good actors, but it's just poor execution and that rating mostly just I again, I've said it a million times. I just don't get it. I don't get the movie. I don't get yeah. what it was trying to accomplish. Yeah. And you know, I I fully agree with you. I don't think I would go much higher than that if I were to go any higher. I mean, this might be a 30% for me. Like, because I, I did find joy in certain parts of this movie. Like, I mean, I can't stress enough how much I love the relationship between Jim and Bart. Like, mm-hmm. those were my favorite scenes. And I, I love the story idea. But yeah, it just fell apart. I mean, yeah. I'm I'm sitting somewhere between a two and a three, just like you. I mean, I may this this is a twenty five percent or so for me. Yeah. Well, there we go. That is, but <laughs> I was just it's kind of where we just kind of end on this morose note, and then it's just like back into the excitement. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can be more morose. Well, there we go. No, no, no. <laughs> It's it's a funny it's a funnier contrast. <laughs> well, there we go. That's Blazing Saddles, and that's our show for this week. If you like that show, one thing you can do for us to really help us out on the business end is just tell your friends, share our posts. Word of mouth is the lifeblood of a podcast trying to get noticed in the huge sea of shows out there. Or if you want to go above and beyond to help us. Go to whatever app it is you listen to your podcasts on and give us five stars. It doesn't matter what you say. 
it's, it's annoying. You gotta log in, and but you know, it's those five stars. They really help us out because they drive us up the charts and help us get noticed. And check out our website, www.iselectthisone.com. There you can find links to all our podcasts, so give them a listen. You can also find links to all our social media. We have Facebook, we have Twitter, we have Instagram. Like our posts, share our posts, comment on our posts, tell us what you think. Social media is the best place to go if you want to find out what we're watching so that you can watch it as well. And also, if you want to get in touch with us, give us an email at I used to like this one, all one word, at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you would like to be a producer of the show and donate to us, you can go to patreon.com slash I used to like this one and become part of our Patreon community. Get a shout out on the show. I Used to Like This One is created by, hosted by, and produced by Sean Wells and Colin Stewart. It is edited by Sean Wells, music by Lyndon Carter. Look for his band Carter in the Capitals anywhere you listen to music. Thank you for listening, and join us next week when we take a look at another movie on I Used to Like This One.